Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the latest Shining Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Spector. And with me, as usual, is Rob. Rob, I'm, I am up today. It's a Tuesday from my vacation. So, uh, you know, I am not asleep today. I'm back to work. <laughs> the shine is worn off. Yeah, the the podcast we started yesterday took a little, well, it, it comes out in different time sequences, but I was a little dead because I had just come back from uh, vacation, so I'm feeling better today. Good, good. we're about to get our heat wave in uh, Austin, so peaking, peaking at to 104, I think they're saying. <laughs> well, we're, fin- so, we're okay. finishing our 100, so our weather discussion. All right, well, let's, let's stop. We could talk weather forever. <laughs> and again, I, I am really excited. We continue to bring in new companies and hopefully for our listeners uh you know you really like you really like to listen to new companies new ideas new solutions new technologies we're working hard behind the scenes to find them and uh, i'm very excited about uh, our guest today uh niroj uh, tolia who's the ceo and founder of castin and uh welcome to the podcast Thank you. It's great to be here. I've been following the podcast for a while and great to talk to both both of you as well as everyone that listens in on this. Well, I, I appreciate it. We hear more and more people listen to the podcast and, and I know Rob and I both are appreciative of this. We keep putting out every week and, and as long as people find value, we'll keep doing it. So why don't we, uh, before we jump in, give us a little background on Casting and yourself. And then sure. we'll go and see where the podcast wanders. Sure. So, so let's start with the company. So I'm co-founder and CEO of Castin. We are a startup based mostly in the Bay Area. Um, but we are looking at helping companies and in particular enterprises with their day two challenges around stateful applications, stateful cloud native applications. So that, that emerging ecosystem is what we are part of today. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about what we see uh, at customers facing the challenges also later. But for me personally, great um, technical person at heart, even though I wear the CEO hat right now, I worked at small companies such as Maginetics, been acquired by other larger companies such as ZMC, now Dell EMC, and worked on a variety of storage products over the course of my career, starting from my PhD at Carnegie Mellon, and then through HP, Dell EMC, Imaginetics, file Systems, Distributed Storage, Block Storage, Object Storage, pretty much across the spectrum. That's amazing. And, and Kasten is focused on stateful applications, but really it's Kubernetes. Is it exclusive to Kubernetes or are you doing something that has broader implications outside of Kubernetes? Today, we are exclusive to Kubernetes, um, and that's a very conscious choice, right? Just given how fast the ecosystem's moving and the challenges seen in the space, we decided to focus on that. So yeah. that makes a lot of sense to me. And then, does, and I mean, you have a, a, a big background uh, touching EMC. Is this, is the statefulness for containerized applications something that requires a storage backend? Are you providing the storage background, or is this sort of a, extension to how Kubernetes handles state? So we think of ourselves as an extension to how Kubernetes manages state, right? So we are in what we call the data management business versus the storage business. So we do not provide a storage uh, backend, but we work with pretty much most vendors out there, large and small. And the reason behind that is in the new world that we are all in with large companies having a hybrid cloud or multi-cloud presence, we really want to give people the choice of picking the best of breeds technology 
and in this case storage technology, but being able to deliver value in a variety of different environments. So that's where we come in at the higher level data management uh, functionality versus a low level storage stuff. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and it 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 resonates to me because people are positioning Kubernetes as this sort of um, universal abstraction. I won't say hybrid because it's really a it's a, it's an you know, they they treat it like an abstraction mm -hmm. since every cloud has different storage infrastructure, different storage constructs. You know your strategy allows allows customers to not worry about that. Is that a fair? That is correct, right? And sometimes you'll see people saying, "Hey, we should have the same uniform storage layer across all clouds, across on-premises data centers," and we don't believe that is the right approach. So what you said is completely mm -hmm. correct. And so, in my opinion, mm -hmm. storage has been the weakest component of the Kubernetes story um, in its first couple years. It, it would be really helpful to hear somebody who's focused on that layer sort of bring, you know, can you bring us up to speed on what's going on in the state, in the, the, the state sets and stateful application side and storage side of Kubernetes? Sure, you know, so let's rewind a little bit, right? So to also give context to people, my first application that went live customer facing on Kubernetes was in 2015. So pre 1.0 days, but even then we saw the opportunity and just the sheer potential of a platform like Kubernetes which is why you know, I bet my next company on it. But when I look at it from where Kubernetes started, and some of this boils down to the roots of where Kubernetes came from in Google, they generally had some large storage infrastructure elsewhere, so they didn't focus on it. The first couple of years in Kubernetes' journey, support for storage wasn't really there, right? Pretty much non-existent. But as we've seen more people add their production workloads into this environment, the needs and requirements from users, which is really what Kubernetes focuses on, the developers, the applications, and thankfully not vendors, um, has caused an explosion in support for different what people call stateful applications. Think NoSQL systems, relational database systems, things of that nature. So there are, and this evolution or this explosion has happened at multiple layers. Obviously storage vendors today now pretty much across the board support Kubernetes. It is rare to find someone that doesn't do that. And a lot of that has thankfully been uh, done via this common interface called the container storage interface. Yeah. And on top of that, Kubernetes has added primitives, Rob. So this is what you were talking about with things like stateful sets as an example that make it much easier to build and deploy these stateful services, right? Because their requirements are different than stateless stuff that Kubernetes initially catered to, all right? And then you have applications, data services that now have first-class support for Kubernetes. So on day one, it is very easy to get them up and running. And you have purpose-built, what sometimes people will call charts or Helm charts for Kubernetes for pretty much any database out there today. Right, so. that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if if I'm looking at building a Kubernetes cluster, right, the mm -hmm. first use case people get is you know sort of a stateless app. Everything's contained in the app. States, you know, mm -hmm. store, you know, build up while the app is running and destroyed when the container is moved. Mm -hmm. What you're describing from a storage perspective is you know 
there's there's two sides to this. One is just the the state of that container itself is is persisted, and then there's storage for the container, um, so it has a place to write data. Mm -hmm. Are those distinct in your mind? Um, or... Somewhat, yes, right. But let's step back a second, and I don't know if you're going to agree with me on this one, but my position is there's no such thing as a stateless app. Hmm? Anything that is useful today always has state. It's sometimes been pushed outside of the Kubernetes context where maybe you store it in a managed database. Maybe you store data in a database running in a VM alongside Kubernetes. You've stored it on a bare metal server somewhere. So it's sometimes been pushed out of Kubernetes, but all real apps have state somewhere. And that is now being brought into the main Kubernetes cluster for a variety of different reasons. Right. That makes and, and and that's and that's clearly true. I think you know when one of the things that, that we like to talk about with immutability is that you know you you drop in a machine with a pre you know everything's pre configured. Even mm -hmm. that still has some post configuration state and then running state. Mm -hmm. What you're just saying is that is that there's no useful there's very few useful applications that don't have some data store somewhere. Um, that's correct. Which is totally true. A lot of times that would be a, that could be a database, but you know, with a lot of data applicate a lot of applications, that data is less structured. Mm -hmm. And so then to go back to your question, I see those two things as somewhat distinct, right? And I think you touched upon the right word when you said immutability. Good design principles in this new containerized world that we live in dictate that your container should be immutable. Persistence belongs outside of your container state. Obviously, everyone has runtime state. You might have a session cache, things of that nature. But any persistence either happens as, you know, on disk, on file, somewhere outside of the container. So if your container gets destroyed, it can still come back up or reattach. Sometimes there's also other state you'll stick into Kubernetes objects. Think, you know, think of your configuration, your secrets. But that's also state as far as I'm concerned. Well, those are a very important state, and that's mm -hmm. one of the challenges that we've had with Kubernetes in general. Is you know you can't do any real work without putting secrets into the system, and so secret injection is another component of of, mm -hmm. of state that has to get tracked into systems. But I, I don't I don't get the sense that those are really where you've been focused, right? It, it, it felt to me in your description that it was more bread and butter storage and state and and taking care of that sort of enterprise concern because yes. people, when people port apps over the you don't want to rewrite your app to eliminate its dependence on state how, mm -hmm. do, how do, you, do you you know what type of applications do you see as you know sort of that you're breaking a logjam for okay so i think you again touch upon the right word application the way we're doing stuff and the joke inside the company is we are recovering infrastructure people right recovery from the part of what we do but because we've all done infrastructure in the past, and we believe that an infrastructure-focused view of doing, say, for example, backup and recovery or disaster recovery is completely mm. the wrong thing to do in this environment. So what we do is we figure out where the pain point for both the operator and developer is that is managing the entire app, right? And that's what we think about first, that what does an app look like? How do we automatically discover it? And if you look at complex apps in a single namespace in Kubernetes or OpenShift, there could be up to 500 plus different components in there, everything from volumes right. to Kubernetes objects. And our goal is to capture high fidelity representation of that 
including all the stuff that sits on disk, but all the way up to your network services, your ingress, your config, your secrets, so that when you want to bring that back, when you want to roll back, it is exactly as what we captured it versus you know some components and then trying to correlate that to your contained images and what might have existed in Git at that point in time. So we take away a lot of the pain for our customers by saying, with a very application-centric point of view, how do we help these application mobility, backup recovery, disaster recovery needs for our customers? And do it in a way with by taking away complexity from them which is a very important thing as we've gotten past some of the early adopters in this environment. Right. I mean, that, that makes, I mean, people have built applications, even they're building new applications mm -hmm. with a lot of assumptions about storage and state and, and removing, and this is just, I guess this to me is when I think about building a stateless application, it's a lot of work. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, everybody wants to wave this magic wand and say, Kubernetes is here, build all your applications. <laughs> yeah. And, and the reality is it, you know, a lot of applications adding that extra work to truly create a state, you know, a, a distributed application is is might not be justifiable cost, or just might be more work than you want to do. So if if you can solve a, yeah, you can still store state, and everybody just goes, ah, okay, mm -hmm. that that makes sense to me, right? You you don't need to make every application, you know, a Google scale, um, you know, exactly. application, especially not initially. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So this is really bringing in constructs that people are much more much more comfortable with from you know the early days. You know that they weren't they didn't have access to in the early days mm -hmm. from that perspective. So one of the things that you said that's really intriguing to me, right? Disaster recovery um, and is is a is a component of this, but multi site mm -hmm. implies that you're not just storing data for your application that's running. You're actually handling application synchronization or replication, is that a component also for what we're talking about? That is correct, right? So again, the world has changed. And back in the day, and you know, by back in the day, I just mean three or four years ago, um, you'd look at a virtualization environment, say a vSphere-based environment. You would have a separate app that did storage level backups, a separate app that did database backups. Maybe you have a copy data management app. Maybe you have a disaster recovery app. That really doesn't need to be the new world that we live in. So when we look at capturing data and using that data, there's a full spectrum for us, everything from backup and recovery to replication across regions, across sites, across infrastructures, across different cloud providers. And I think that's a critical part of requirements coming up. You probably see this a lot from some of the other customers that both of you also worked with where we are looking at people that are deploying in multiple clouds, definitely still have the on-prem, that isn't going away. So how do you give them this true portability without that vendor lock-in is really where we want to help them from the app replication or the database replication point of view? So what, is, what does that look like? I mean, if, if I'm assuming you're not making their containers unique. It's mm -hmm. this a platform. You're you know you're basically making the platform have a new have additional data context. You're just using CSI. It's um, a great the question. container storage interface. Mm -hmm. So it's a great question. Um, so the way we look at it is right. You think of us. We think of ourselves as what we call a core platform or a core cluster add-on. That is, you deploy us within Kubernetes. So we blur the lines between application and infrastructure. We deploy as an app. But then we start behaving as infrastructure to provide services for pretty much any app, and we don't need to know what the app looks like or change it. Any app that runs on top of Kubernetes. 
Okay. So an analogy, it's not perfect, but the analogy to look at it is our K10 platform is your service mesh for data, right? Where by simply using okay. us, we can, you can use all, you can use us for backup recovery needs, disaster recovery, replication mobility requirements. Yeah, if that makes sense. So we run in the context of your Kubernetes cluster, and then we can associate different clusters with each other to be able to move data around and in fact the entire application stack around depending on what you want to do does that make sense it does I, the service mesh analogy is uh interesting because one of the things about a service mesh is this decoupling aspect where mm -hmm. you know container uh, an application can make a request and then the actual you know what's what's fulfilling that request is um, decoupled from from the system, right? That's mm -hmm. what the service mesh is doing. Yeah, and that's and that that that's the place where the analogy makes sense for you. Mm -hmm. It does, right? Because okay. it's about when people ask us, and by people, it might be policies that are automated. It might be the operator, might be the developer. When the platform, when our platform is asked to do something, all of that is specified in an infrastructure independent manner. Okay. And that allows us to do the best of breed things when moving things around. For example, if I'm going from US East 1 to US West 1 in AWS, I can use very efficient primitives by, underlying, by exploiting the underlying cloud infrastructure. But if I'm moving from on-prem to AWS or to Google, in that scenario, we apply our own deduplication techniques to optimize that. So the choice is left to be at runtime to get to, to do whatever the ask has been. So there is that independence that we deliver for applications so that your stateful applications really can be now write once but deploy anywhere. I, and I guess the, the use cases make sense. I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around mm -hmm. what the, the tech looks like. Um, Right. I mean, if, if you're taking advantage of the, the container interfaces mm -hmm. that Kubernetes offers, you're really just you know taking requests directly from that interface. Then you're figuring out what that that storage is and then just mapping it. It's it's you know, I know there's a ton of technology in yeah. the middle. But yeah. Is it is it that simple of a, of a concept? We present it as that simple of the concept. Right. Uh, one of the first things that we thought about before a first line of code was written was ease of use. How do we take on complexity so our users and customers do not have to? Okay, and it, what you stated is correct. From the user point of view, it is a simple API that they can go plug into. There's a lot of heavy lifting and magic that happens underneath the hood under those relatively simple APIs. So when you talk about the tech, it's about exploiting things like the container storage interface or CSI that you talked about to be able to orchestrate some of the underlying storage. It's about very complicated scheduling and policy work to, as well as security work to perform actions that the user requires, right? And then it's about efficient data transfer techniques when you're moving from edge locations, when you're moving data across environments which have egress fees. How do you efficiently do that so you aren't running into cost issues there? So there's all of that heavy lifting that also happens underneath the hood. So when you go look at how the infrastructure independence abstractions we provide, when you go look at how we exploit different storage infrastructures, how we move data around, 
There's a lot of that underneath the hood, but a goal should be from the operator point of view, the developer point of view, it is as dead simple as possible. That makes a lot of sense to me. I, I can see a challenge in latency and performance, mm -hmm. right? You could easily, you know, get into a case where you've said, oh, I'm going to use this thing that's, you know, across three uh, Amazon boundaries or across mm -hmm. my firewall. Um, and you could very quickly create a uh, latency, you know, based on your the networking in between your storage zones. Is Does that become a challenge? I mean, it, I, I understand why somebody would want to say, oh, this is actually stored in this location, mm -hmm. connect me to it. But ah, this, the, you know, that could create troubleshooting and application performance issues that would be very hard to troubleshoot. Uh, it's a great point, right? And this is where some of that heavy lifting I touched upon comes in. So networking in particular is extremely complex in these multi-site topologies you talked about, particularly given today's security context and the, you know, the adversarial world these applications work within. And so for that, right, we've done a lot of work. So when, um, when you talk about cross-site, cross-cluster replication, these clusters on different sides don't need to talk to each other. Because even if the network wasn't adversarial, you could have, say, for example, a production cluster and a test dev cluster that it's in different security domain. So what we ask for is, right, or rather we do not ask for any networking crosstalk between clusters. But just having access to shared storage or shared object storage between these clusters that we use as a data transfer mechanism. And those can be easily locked down, scoped internally within the product. We support things like RBAC from very early on to help enable this secure workflow across customers without having to poke holes in your firewall or without needing to do anything special a priori. So that's, that's a very a important component. Yeah, I was going to say that that the the use case that I think is you know really worth highlighting here uh, is especially in light of you know Capital One, although that's just the mm -hmm. breach of the day, unfortunately. Um, what you know, if if you can say take your app, take your cluster, spin it up, attach to the you know policy driven data set, mm -hmm. then yeah, your 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 data source for production could be totally different than test, could be totally different. But you could actually start, you know, controlling access in a much more granular way, and actually provide some audit about what's what what those applications are connecting to. Yeah. Um, that's I, a very powerful feature. Completely agree. And I think we there's a lot of hype around Kubernetes. There's a lot of buzz around containers today, but in my mind, I think we're just getting started. Some of what you just talked about here, I think, is very relevant, and it's just going to change how. Applications are built and deployed moving forward. How we'll be able to use real data in CI/CD pipelines. How best principles will get adopted even faster, given the benefit people see. So th this is just one of these things where having the right primitives up front will allow us to do so much more as we move forward over the next two to five years. Yeah, it's fascinating. This is this is really showing. Um, Part of what I think the promise is for Kubernetes, which is this this, this abstraction layer, I feel like we're we're I'm, I'm getting a I'm getting a loop through in in the podcast because right we started with Kubernetes as this mm -hmm. abstraction layer. If if you can you know service mesh on the network side provides some abstractions, uh, what you're talking about is a storage mesh 
on the on the other side where it's you know you're providing abstractions for the storage i totally agree these are very hard concepts they're not they're, they don't they don't pop up overnight um when when you start getting into multi-site capabilities how how is how are you thinking about multi-site data synchronization with kubernetes differently than single site or just differently than we've done it before. Okay, so the way we are thinking about it is that, and this goes back to a point I touched upon earlier, that it is about picking for each environment, picking the best of breed, but even a high, level higher than that, giving customers a choice of what they want. Earlier, right, you go looked at the traditional on-prem system. It would be NetApp here, NetApp there. We use SnapMirror, other techniques to replicate data across these environments. Right, synchronous, asynchronous, whatever it might be. And some of that was because it was hard to, A, get data out of these systems, and it was hard to work against the complexity of multiple storage interfaces. What Kubernetes has done, both from the API level constructs, when you go look at persistent volumes, persistent volume claims, or stateful sets, these are all Kubernetes definitions. Um, and then you go look at interfaces such as container storage interface that really introduces a, a layer of uniformity across storage vendors. Being able to abstract that, I believe, will give vendors or will give users the power to pick the best vendor they want in a particular environment. If I'm in AWS, let me use EBS, which is battle-tested. If I'm on-prem, let me use my Dell EMC or NetApp system. And then we provide the data management on top that gives you the translation capability with efficiency, with performance, so you have the best of both worlds, so to speak. It's somewhat like... That makes a lot of, hmm? Go ahead. It makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, one of the limitations with Kubernetes, as much as we've, we've, we've got CSI now as a, as a you know, maturing interface, there's so much more you can do with storage. Mm -hmm. um, you know what you're saying is, is that you're 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 providing a way to access a lot more of that information. Exactly, um, which makes a ton, ton of sense to me. Yeah. So I, I had a, a question. I'm always curious mm -hmm. about from um, you know just a, a model perspective. Are you doing? Is this a traditional software play where it's you know hey this is something you install in a Kubernetes cluster and you you get a license or are you providing a managed service? Okay, we are providing a software um, that runs in the context of a Kubernetes cluster, right? Between us, I would have loved to build a service, all right, because there's a lot of power to this. But at the end of the day, we are pe touching people's sensitive data. Today, we're in production with apps that we have very little knowledge of because they're extremely sensitive for these companies. And sure. because of that, it made the right, we made the, what we have now found out was the right choice to be able to run completely dark if we need to, to be able to run behind a firewall. Because when you have data, when you have things like GDPR pop up, all of those make for a better fit with the product versus a service in this environment. And we are very confident I with some of those decisions we made. I'm very happy to hear you say that. Um, in that, one of the things that that and Stephen knows this well is that we we sort of fish for is this idea of Kubernetes cre creating a new ecosystem of software de people delivering software that uses Kubernetes and then in your case actually builds on Kubernetes. But mm -hmm. you're saying, look, I I run in Kubernetes. I don't need to be a managed service and hook into your system. Mm -hmm. I can deliver classic you know maybe maybe 
running in Kubernetes doesn't make it classic software, but it's a it's an enterprise software model. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, to me, this this is really this is this is back to the innovation cycle that we want. Mm -hmm. you're, you're not asking customers to open up their firewalls mm -hmm. or trust you with data. You're selling them software. They're owning their data. And I think it's a bigger point outside of just what we do. But because when I look at I mean, Kubernetes is a system I had always wanted, right? Just didn't know I just didn't know that because of <laughs> the ease of use, even though it is complex, and the power it gives me to build resilient, highly available applications. It literally will sh has shaved off multiple man years worth of effort in building out a platform today. Hmm? And this is something I think that the audience will also be very interested in as they explore more of cloud native technologies, as they get their hands dirty with this, they will see the power in it that will change the way they build apps and build resilient apps in this environment practically for free. I, I strongly agree. I think the you mean free from an architectural cost. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. That's right, and I, I think that that's that's an important thing that we're changing in practice in best practice. You're mm -hmm. right. Deployments, deployment pipelines, the whole architectural strategy, the abstractions. Um, these are really powerful benefits that aren't dependent on you having a managed service. Granted, I mean Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and others are, you know, all over offering Kubernetes as a service, but you know, that, you know, that doesn't mean that you have to consume it or consume everything you need via that service interface or a managed service interface. Mm -hmm. I, always, I always like to highlight those parts of the stories because this is a place where I think, um, especially in, in terms of data security and our, our growing awareness of data leaking, um, like we talked about with Mike Kale, mm -hmm. um, Mike Kyle, the, those, are, those are places where, you know, we do need to start thinking through how this works. Um, you can't just off-source it all and say, oh, it's their problem, and then it just doesn't work that way. It's everyone's problem. Yes, it is a collective thing. <laughs> all right. Well, another great podcast, and um, it was really good. I, I think I will say Rob's comment about the end. We did a podcast, but it's been a month or two, Rob, about the death of software based on the whole SaaS model and is anyone going to still own their own software? And Rob, I know why uh, you were so excited at the end of this podcast. That's why I asked. <laughs> I, could, I, I, could, I could tell what that is. Well, this I, is all. It's, it's, it's funny because I feel like the, those of us doing enterprise software are, you know, are being told we're swimming upstream, but the enterprises are, are, are asking us for it. So it's, it's a little counterculture brewing. Well, that's good. So, Neeraj, uh, if people want to find out more about your company, um, yourself, are there any events coming up or any news um, that might be interesting for people to look at? Sure, right. So we're going to have a couple of exciting things. Unfortunately, can't share just today, but in the next week or so, uh, we're going to be talking about a lot about what we're doing. But as a way to find out more about what we do, about us, about me, the best place is to just go to a company website. That's Kasten with a K, K-A-S-T-E-N dot I-O. And there's a lot more information for people. You can go get a product, look at the open source stuff. Um, just get your hands dirty without ever having to talk to us. So don't charge people and I see you're part of the, And I see you're part of the Cloud Native Foundation as well. Mm -hmm. So I assume through that, people can find more information about you. 
Definitely. We are there at every KubeCon. We sponsor events. We give talks. Uh, it's easy to get a hold of us on Twitter, on social media, at events. So come find us, talk to us. We would love to talk to everyone out there. Great. Well, thanks to both of you for another great podcast and to our listeners. Uh, if you liked this and you want to participate, as we always say, uh, reach out to Rob and myself. We're happy to have you on. And, uh, and again, Kasten, uh, new company for us to learn about. And uh, certainly in a couple months, uh, Neeraj, we should have you on again. Kind of give us a state of where you are, uh, you know, maybe about three, four or five months or so. Mm-hmm. And what's changed, what you're seeing. Um, let's definitely stay in touch because I think you're working an interesting space that's going to change fast. So it's good to, to always have uh, companies like yourself leading the edge talk to us. I would love that. And again, thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. Hershey was great. Thank you.